Welcome to another deep dive episode of the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. This is where we will dig deeper into the content from Sunday's sermon, consider even more ways of thinking about the Bible and how to live it, and encourage one another to follow Jesus more closely together. I'm your host, Will Barlow. Let's dive in. Excited to do another deep dive today as we begin our Exodus series. Again, my name is Will Barlow. I'm the head pastor of Compass Christian Church. And here at Compass, we're beginning the new year 2024 with a series on the theme of Exodus throughout Scripture. This past Sunday, uh, I preached on the subject of Yahweh as Father, and we talked in large part about Exodus chapters 1, 2, and 3, and uh, the implication for our personal lives. We talked about how it's tempting to think that God shows up uh, initially in in chapter 3 of Exodus uh, at the burning bush, and, you know, in some ways that's definitely true. He he definitely does show up in a way uh, that is unique and different and powerful um, in Exodus chapter 3, but he's also at work in the first couple of chapters, and um, so there will be times like that in our lives when we, we go through periods where God is showing up in very dramatic and powerful ways. And then there will also be times in our life when he's not quite showing up in the way that we would expect. And maybe he's working more slowly or through uh, more internal processes or um, just uh, over time to help us to be in the right place to where we can uh, do what he needs us to do and accomplish what he needs us to accomplish. So in these deep dives, we'll be spending some time digging even deeper into uh, some of the cool stuff uh, that, that me and the other people who are teaching in the series have looked into and that either we didn't have time for on Sunday or we wanted to you know, focus on other things or whatever the case might be. And so uh, since this is the first uh, sermon in the Exodus series and also uh, the first deep dive, therefore, of the Exodus series, I wanted to give a little bit of a couple of introductory comments about uh, just the Exodus more generally. Um, And I want to start by giving some of the resources that we're going to be using in the sermon series and also that we'll be using in these deep dive uh, recordings. The first one is a book done by a uh, Jewish rabbi, David Foreman. It's called The Exodus You Almost Passed Over. He has a lot of great insights on uh, the process of Exodus and why God uh, chose to do things a certain way instead of maybe the faster or the easier way we could imagine God could have done it. Um, He also has some really excellent insights on um, hardening Pharaoh's heart and on on Passover and things like that. So we will continue working through a lot of the material in his book, both on Sunday and then in these deep dives. Another book that was incredibly helpful is a book called The Echoes of Exodus by Alastair Roberts and Andrew Wilson, two, I believe they're both British uh, scholars. 
Um, and it's an excellent uh, Christian resource on how the theme of Exodus gets played out throughout Scripture. Uh, they really do a fantastic job of, of highlighting all the different echoes uh, that, that arise both um, in, in the Old Testament, past, various Old Testament passages, and also in the New Testament. Uh, we'll also, just like in our Ephesians series, be heavily leaning on the Bible Project resources, both the podcasts where they did um, stuff on the Exodus scroll. They went through all the scrolls of the Torah, the law. And uh, there also is a Bible Project classroom that's taught by Dr. Carmen Imes. It's also very good, very helpful. And then the final, the final major thing that we'll be pulling from is the NIV application commentary by Peter Enns. Uh, it's one of the better regarded commentaries on the book of Exodus and also does an excellent job of highlighting both the echoes in the rest of Scripture as well as understanding how we should apply these truths today, these, these, uh, these concepts that we pick up in this Exodus narrative. There are a couple of books that we're not going to really spend a lot of time talking about, but I wanted, did want to mention one of them here now uh, because it's one of my favorite books I've ever read, and that is a book called The Miracles of Exodus by Colin Humphreys. Uh, Humphreys is a British physicist who wrote a book on the Exodus, and really his focus is on the plagues. His focus is on uh, the Exodus route, and his purpose is really to demonstrate that there are very solid physical explanations for a lot of things that we read about in Scripture. And I, I find it to be an interesting an interesting case. I don't think that necessarily uh, he's right <laughs> about how the plagues took place. I tend to think that, you know, we can understand these things supernaturally, and we don't need a uh, natural... A naturalistic explanation for them. I think providing an example mechanism is, is fascinating stuff. I tend to think that his view of the route of Exodus is probably right. Um, he also has and makes a strong case uh, for the um, he makes a strong case for the people of Israel being a smaller group of people, not millions of people, but instead tens of thousands of people in the course of his book. And so, um, and I think that that's probably right as well. So he, he makes a lot of excellent points. Uh, we're not going to use uh, his resources uh, as much uh, just because we're focusing on other aspects of the Exodus narrative. But also an excellent resource if you are interested in procuring stuff on the Exodus. I highly recommend The Miracles of Exodus by Colin Humphreys, especially if you're into uh, science and understanding miracles. It's a really excellent resource. So let's continue by thinking about the historicity of the Exodus. Um, there are a lot of questions in scholarship about whether the Exodus actually took place, um, if the people of uh, the Hebrew people were ever in Egypt or what time period they were in Egypt and if they really did escape uh, through these series of miracles. And I just want to say that all the resources uh, that I mentioned uh, already um, many, many scholars um, along all sorts of different lines, uh, different perspectives and beliefs, um, including, like I said, the Bible Project, uh, both the, the Bible Project uh, podcast as well as the class done by Dr. Carmen Imes, 
um, all, all of the resources that are used in, in this particular series uh, all believe that the Exodus was an actual historical event. I believe that the Exodus was an actual historical event. Um, one of the primary bits of evidence, so I think there's, there's a fair amount of archaeological evidence and there's a different, like I said, scientific evidence and things that people can use to bolster their belief that this event actually took place. Um, but um, I think the main reason that, that I've heard over and over again by various resources is that we know that the Exodus actually took place primarily because of how it affected the nation of Israel from that moment forward. So we can really, we can really say definitively that this is not meant to be like a parable and teach us a lesson, although there are many lessons we can draw from this narrative, uh, from these stories of Exodus. Um, but, but really, the way we can understand this actually happened is because of how the nation of Israel continually looks back to this moment. Uh, eventually in the New Testament, uh, the people of God continue to look back at this moment of Exodus and, and draw um, you know, very real uh, reflections from them and, and, and it changes their perspective of, of who God is and how he works. And so I just want to make a, a statement here at the beginning that, you know, we, we're going to use the word stories. We've been using the word stories or the singular story, the story of Exodus, the different moments or the different stories within the na greater narrative of the Exodus. And I just want to say very clearly here at the beginning that I absolutely believe that uh, these events took place as they are described in the book of Exodus. Um, you know, the people of God were in captivity in Egypt. They were uh, released from that captivity um, through the ministry of Moses and through the, the power of God. And so I don't want to bury that or, you know, set that aside. I want to just make sure that that's very clear here at the beginning. And, and so, you know, to, to just further the point I was just making here a second ago, when we use the language of stories, when we use the language of storytelling, it, it does not mean that it did not happen historically. Um, also, we're going to be talking a lot about uh, literary devices like repeated words and repeated themes. And using literary analysis does not mean that it, these events did not happen historically. Um, these techniques are helpful to us in understanding the original audience uh, or the original audiences, the generations of the Exodus, and the generation, the generation of the Exodus singular, and the generations that followed uh, that, that generation, uh, how they would have heard this original message uh, when, uh, when they came across this message in the Exodus scroll. And so, you know, using literary devices, understanding uh, storytelling and, and that kind of thing, or, or, or thinking about uh, ancient Near Eastern ideas, concepts, you know, all, all these different things, doesn't mean that it's not historical. It, it just means, hey, we're trying to understand this the way that they would have understood it in as many ways as we can do that. So now, like I said, there is a debate about if it happened. There's also a debate about when the Exodus took place. Uh, there are two major views on this, the 13th century or uh, the later view, and then the 15th century or the earlier view. And I'm going to give a brief little rundown of that debate here. But if you want more information on this, I recommend Dr. Carmen Imes' class uh, through the Bible Project, her class on Exodus. She goes into a fair amount of detail on this debate. But just to give like a summary of what she talks about, the earlier 15th century, the, the arguments for that is that in 1 Kings 6 verse 1, we have this 
a number that's thrown out there that 480 years um, after the Exodus, you know, certain certain things take place in Solomon's rule. And we know that Solomon, we can date, you know, the events in Solomon's day to about 960 BC. And so if you count back uh, 480 years from Solomon, you know, that that puts you in the middle of the 15th century BC, you know, around 1440 or 1450 BC. So um, the main problem with this from an Egyptology perspective, and we do, you know, Egyptologists will say that we, we do know quite a bit about Egypt over the eons, even though it is an ancient civilization. Uh, they were excellent at um, preserving their history and, you know, writing it down. The, the, Scholarly consensus is that the pharaoh lived uh, at Thebes during that time, uh, 400 miles away, which was a city in what they call Upper Egypt, which is actually south of Lower Egypt. Um, it's interesting how they viewed things based on uh, the flow of the Nile rather than north and south in our modern conventions. But anyway, the point is, Pharaoh lived 400 miles away from where we understand Goshen to be and where we understand, you know, the events of Exodus to take place. Uh, the other problem is that um, the e Egyptians controlled uh, Canaan during that period of time. They controlled uh, the promised land. And so uh, in the Exodus narrative, what happens is the people of Israel leave Egypt. They have this confrontation at the Sea of Reeds. And then they move on into the, the wilderness, and eventually they end up in, in the land of Canaan, which is now modern-day Israel. And when they get there, there are tribes there. Not Egyptian, it's not Egyptian-controlled anymore. There are other tribes that are in control there. So, so there are two you know, pretty big obstacles to the 15th century uh, view. You have Pharaoh being in the wrong spot and the fact that they would still have been fighting the Egyptians in the promised land had they left in the 15th century. So the, the other uh, option is the 13th century. And during that period of time in Egypt's history, Pharaoh did live near Python and Ramses. And Ramses specifically is a city that is mentioned in Exodus chapter 1. So, um, you know, there's some strong tie in there. Uh, by this time, Egypt had lost control of Canaan. Um, during this period of time, in also in Egypt's history, Israel is mentioned on the Mer Merneptah Steel, Steel, which is dated to around uh, you know somewhere in the early 1200s BC. Uh, there are concerns here. The first one is is biblical, like we talked about. There's 480 years uh, mentioned. Uh, counting from the Exodus to Solomon in 1 Kings 6.1. So what do you do with the 480 years? Well, uh, one option is to say that 40 years is more, uh, you know, 12, it's 480 years is more like uh, 12 generations of 40 years per generation. And really it's, it's about, uh, you know, 12 generations and, each generation is actually shorter than 40 years. You know, if you if you get down to like 25 years, for example, uh, you're able to to relate those two dates a little bit more closely together. Uh, the other concern is uh, geography and archaeology. For example, there are concerns about uh, the battle 
um, with Jericho and what was going on in Jericho at that time, you know, there, there are still questions, open questions that, that need to be thought about, need to be answered. But overall, I, I, you know, Car Dr. Imes holds to the 13th century view. She thinks that's more likely. I also agree that that's probably more likely. I'm not dogmatic about it. You know, it's, it's something that there are still open questions about. So I'd like to spend a little bit more time now on the subject, on the concept of echoes. On Sunday, I explained the concept of echoes in relationship to scripture. And again, when we uh, think about an echo, an echo in the biblical sense is when a biblical event is so important that the themes, the language, and uh, so on are imported from the original context to a new context. So it actually affects a lot of the language that we use, even in you know, the Christian context, the New Testament context. I'll give you an example. When we think about the word redemption, redemption is a Christian slang word at this point. You say the word redemption and you, you import quite a few beliefs into what redemption is and what it means to be redeemed and all those things. Um, what we should think about this, what we should think about redemption is, redemption is talking about the freeing of a slave. And so when we encounter this word in the New Testament, we usually find it's, it's talking about our freedom from sin through the death of Jesus. That's usually, you know, we're talking about redemption in that sense, freedom from sin through the death of Jesus. But as Tim Mackey points out, the word redemption should remind us of the Exodus, since that is one of the first places and perhaps the most important places is used in Scripture. So, you know, when we come across this redemption language, this redemption language should remind us of Exodus. It should remind us of the events that took place to free the Israelite people from Egyptian control. And so therefore, it, it's what, what I'm describing here as an echo. It, the redemption of God's people from literal historical slavery in Egypt, that affects our mind picture of what Christian redemption looks like today. So we're taking this event from its Old Testament or initial context, and then we are applying that to our mind picture of these New Testament spiritual realities. Now, I want to dig a little bit deeper into the concept of echoes, because as, as cool as the concept of an echo is, there's, there's actually another really cool example we can use, and that is what was mentioned in, in the book Echoes of Exodus. And again, Ex Echoes of Exodus was written by Alistair Roberts and Andrew Wilson, and they use another analogy that some of us might find helpful. Some of us might think this is a little nerdy, but I'm going to throw it out there just in case you find it interesting. And the analogy that they use throughout the whole book, Echoes of Exodus, is the idea of music, uh, specifically classical symphonies. And actually, this is the same terminology that gets used in the Bible Project frequently. Uh, in, classical, in a classical symphony, there are things called movements, and each movement has a unique series of, of notes or chords and a, a distinct sound, a distinct you know, rhythm and cadence and all these different things, okay? What usually happens with symphonies, although this is not always true, but what usually happens in symphonies is the first movement of the symphony, where there might be you know, many, many movements, the first movement generally introduces many of the notes and the sounds and the chords that you can find in later movements. And then in the later movements, these, these concepts, these musical concepts, get explored in more detail 
um, in unique sort of ways. And what the, what the composer can do is, is play with these ideas, play with these musical concepts in later movements. And so sometimes uh, the way that the music gets played with and, and worked with um, falls in line with what we would expect or what you know, experts, I should say, would expect. And sometimes there are very surprising uh, transitions and th things that clash and things that don't quite sound exactly right the first time we hear it maybe, and then maybe it makes more sense as we move along. And so what Roberts and Wilson do is they argue that there are three ways in which we can understand scripture using the metaphor of music. Uh, the first one is what they call tension and resolution. So sometimes two parts of the Bible or even two parts of the same book can seem to clash. And often in these cases, new elements are introduced to help us harmonize the problems. Sometimes the clash is sustained, making us uncomfortable, but at the same time pointing to a moment of resolution, which is still future. So they're taking these musical concepts and applying them to scripture. Uh, the second thing that they point out is the relationship between the melody and the harmony. Uh, the melody is the main tune of a musical piece. Uh, if you think about a work where singing is involved, the melody is the part sung by the lead singer. The harmony is the part sung by the backup singers. And as Roberts and Wilson argue, the Bible has a clear memory, and they say the tune is so simple that even a child can, can hum it. Um, but the smaller stories in Scripture all play their parts, adding depth to the musical composition, and we, we could say add harmony to the melody. So we can ask about specific moments in the story just as we would analyze individual contributions in an orchestra. And we have to realize that it's at, at some level it all does work together, but sometimes it takes thinking about things for a while to see how the harmony fits exactly with the melody or what the individual um, musician or instrument is doing in the context of the larger composition. And the same thing is true with the Bible. Sometimes there are pieces that fit very easily. Sometimes there are pieces that we have to wrestle with for a while to understand what, what this piece is doing and, and why it's in there and, and what's going on with it. The final thing that they talk about is rhythm and meter. And these are musical elements that provide structure to a musical composition. And when they apply this to the Bible, they think about uh, the biblical calendar with Sabbath, Passover, Day of Atonement, Pentecost, all of these things provide a, ry a rhythm that help us see patterns in Scripture. And in this goal of looking at patterns in Scripture, one of the things that, that they notice and that I've noticed and that the Bible Project and other people have noticed is that uh, reflection on the creation week is helpful. And I want to share with you a quote on what Roberts and Wilson say on this point. So I'm quoting directly from the Echoes of Exodus, page 25. They say, so when Mary approaches the tomb early in the morning of the first day of the week, while it is still dark, we are swept back to the first day of the very first week while it was still dark, and we anticipate the word of God shattering the darkness. Let there be light. From then on, as the first day of the week becomes the Lord's day, we look back to creation and back to Easter and simultaneously look forward to the day when all darkness will become light and death will finally be swallowed up in victory, end quote. So, you know, they, uh, Roberts and Wilson, you know, set forward in the book Echoes of Exodus, they use a lot of musical terminology and they make a strong, compelling case that the language of music is helpful with us understanding the phenomenon of echoes in scripture as well. So meditate on that, sit with that a little bit, see what you think. 
Um, I certainly appreciated the approach. And I, th I think you might find it useful as well. Now I'd like to transition to some of the pre-echoes of the Exodus. We, we talked about basically Exodus one through the first half of chapter three in our first sermon. And I wanna point out that there are a lot of pre-echoes of the Exodus, you know, Exodus uh, motifs and images that get used in the book of Genesis that predate the, what we call the, the, the big Exodus in the book of Exodus. And so I just want to give a couple of examples of that because I thought these were really interesting and I got these examples from the book Echoes of Exodus. So uh, the first um, great example of a, a prefiguring or a pre-echoing of the Exodus is actually with Noah. Noah leads his family and animals away from the impending judgment in the waters of the flood. Uh, a couple of specific details that really prefigure or pre-echo the Exodus. God brings Noah safely to rest on a mountain where God makes a covenant with Noah. So here we have mountain, we have covenant. Um, so those are two really big things in the Exodus account with Moses. Moses meets God on the mountain through the burning bush. Um, he eventually makes a covenant with Yahweh um, and Yahweh and Moses and the people of Israel make a covenant together at, the, at that same mountain. So those, those are some pretty strong pre-echoes. Another sort of cool one is uh, Moses sends spies into the land of Canaan to see uh, more information about the land. Well, Noah sends out birds to spy out the land during the flood. So there's, again, a couple of pre-echoes pre of the Exodus there. Another great pre-echo story is Abraham, uh, or Abram as he's called at the beginning of the account. Abraham leads his family out of Ur to Haran. They sojourn in Haran until Abraham's father, uh, Terah, dies. Uh, that's kind of like the generation of Israelites that had to die in the wilderness. And as Abraham uh, goes through the land of Israel, later in the story when he, when he makes it to the land and he camps in various places in what we now know as the land of Israel, it, it's not like the physical conquest done later by Joshua. It's more of like a spiritual conquest Abraham builds altars. He calls others to worship God with him. He lives peaceably with the people around him. Um, of course, Abraham eventually journeys down to Egypt himself because of famine um, and then has to escape. And plagues are involved with that because he tells a lie about who Sarah is. So, you know, all these themes get used, you know, many, many of these themes get used in the Exodus story as well in very, very striking ways. Uh, there are other Echoes of Exodus that we can briefly mention in Genesis. Uh, you've got Hagar, uh, who has to leave Abraham's family and survive in the desert. So there's some Exodus themes there about surviving in the desert. You've got Isaac, especially the moment where Isaac is taken up in Genesis 22 uh, to be placed on the altar. He's taken up to the mountain to worship God with his father. You know, take the whole meeting God on the mountain thing and the altar piece and, and the worship piece. That's all in the Exodus. You've got Isaac and Rebekah leaving Gerah after moving there after a famine. Um, they have to have a mini Exodus of their own um, out of that group of people. You've got Lot and his escape or his Exodus from Sodom and Gomorrah. You've got Jacob being um, slighted repeatedly by his father-in-law Laban only to have a really dramatic exit from Laban's household. So like he, he leaves with all of his property. He has to sort of like steal his property. 
uh, from Laban, and he you know tries to escape and flee rapidly. And then weirdly, Laban catches up with him and claims that he's looking for his gods and his household gods uh, that were stolen from him uh, by his daughter, Rachel. Um, you know, the, the text sort of makes fun of Laban and his gods because Rachel is sitting on an animal and she claims uh, to be dealing with her time of the month and she's sitting on top of those gods. And so the gods... Laban's gods are pictured as helpless against not only a woman, but a woman uh, who's at her time of the month. So it's sort of a, it's sort of a comedic uh, moment there. But again, the idea of God, uh, Yahweh triumphing over gods, the idea of a dramatic exit from someone who has been uh, sliding you or abusing you, uh, these are prefiguring the later Exodus account. So all this to say that by the time we reach the actual book of Exodus, the theme of Exodus is already alive and well in Scripture, um, and then this particular narrative is going to flush things out in, in much deeper and more robust ways. To close out this deep dive, I wanted to talk about some, some deeper insights into chapters 1 through 3 that we didn't have time to get into in our first sermon. And, and these are just a couple of examples. Of course, there's gonna be many things we could talk about in, script, in, in these scriptures. I'm just gonna hit some highlights here. And uh, I'd, I'd encourage you uh, to, if you want more information, to go uh, take the class with Carmen Imes on the Bible Project. Go take a listen to the Bible Project uh, podcast on this. They go into a lot of detail about a lot of different things. I'm just gonna make a couple high high level points here. Um, when we, when we get to the beginning of the book of Exodus, there is a description of the Israelites uh, growing in numbers and being prospered by God. And that's deliberately meant to echo the Genesis language of being fruitful and multiplying. God is uh, blessing his people. He's blessing his people with, with health and with numbers, and with fruitfulness, and with multiplication physically, with, with children, and grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, and so on. And so when we think about this, when we think about this in the context, again, of, the, of what God has done, especially early in Genesis, with the creation, and the exhortation to be fruitful and multiply, um, and then, of course, the promise to Abraham that he would bless his offspring, his, the people that came after him. When, when Pharaoh, when a Pharaoh arrives on the scene who does not know Joseph and therefore has no respect for the God of Joseph, the God of his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Pharaoh sees this blessing. Pharaoh sees how these people are prospering. He sees how they're thriving. And his reaction to that is fear. And his response to that is to try to uh, well, he does successfully enslave the people. But I think, I think what he's really trying to do there is he's trying to steal, as I think Tim Mackey points out in the Bible Project, he's trying to steal uh, the blessing of God for himself, the benefit of the fruitfulness and the multiplication. He's trying to steal that fruit, uh, God's fruit, God's people for himself, for his own greed. So Pharaoh is uh, co-opting. He is... Um, uh, he is stealing this blessing, much like Laban stole from Jacob. So, you know, 
that's one piece of it. One piece of it is 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 stealing the blessing and greed and evil. You know, Pharaoh's wrapped up in all of that. But there there is another side of this which we're going to explore in a couple of Sundays, and that is that Pharaoh lived in a polytheistic environment. There were many gods in the Egyptian system, and Pharaoh himself was one of them. And so by co-opting the blessing of God, by, uh, you know, taking what God is doing to bless his people and enslaving them instead, what, what Pharaoh is actually doing is he's setting himself up against Yahweh. He is, he's elevating himself as a God and trying to insert himself over the affairs of the, the Hebrew people in a way that only a God should be able to do. And so he's setting up this battle between himself and Yahweh that's going to play out in the rest of the Exodus account. Uh, there was really something interesting, um, an interesting connection that was made. Again, I believe it was Tim Mackey in the Bible Project said this, that at the beginning of Exodus, we find a group of people that are enslaved. And as we talked about this past Sunday, one of the big points about Exodus is not just that it's freedom from something, freedom from slavery, freedom from oppression, freedom from, um, from the taskmaster of Egypt. It's not just freedom from something. Uh, Exodus is also about freedom for something, freedom for service to God, freedom for worship, freedom for a life lived the way that God intends it to be lived. And so there's there's an interesting there's an interesting series of words I might slightly mispronounce them so please don't hold me to these but in the beginning of the book of Exodus we find the people of Israel building store cities and the Hebrew word there is miskinot and then by the end of the book of Exodus we find them building a tabernacle a mishkan so we got miskinot to mishkan <laughs> from the beginning of the book of Exodus, uh, they are literally serving Pharaoh by building store cities. And by the end, they are literally serving Yahweh by building the tabernacle. And they, they put that uh, very similar sounding Hebrew words there to clue us in that, that those two things are meant to be tied together, that we're to understand them together. So it's very fascinating, very fascinating. Um, as I mentioned on Sunday, uh, God works very imperceptibly. He's, he's still working in the chapters one and two, but he's working through sort of surprising people. He's working, in this case, he's working through women, uh, various women. And I talked about, you know, we have the Israelite midwives that refuse to obey the king. She, she, the, uh, the Pharaoh tells these women, you know, hey, if it's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, you know, let the girl live. And the midwives just tell a lie to Pharaoh. They say, hey, these, these Hebrew women, they're too, they're too vigorous, they're too powerful, they're too quick. By the time we get there, the baby's already been born. Uh, then uh, the Pharaoh decides, well, I'm just going to tell the parents they've got to throw their baby into the Nile. If any baby boys get born, you've got to throw them into the Nile. And Moses' mother famously uh, defies that order. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about what she says about Moses there here in a second, but Moses' mother defies Pharaoh's order. Then we have Miriam, likely around age six, 
uh, acting bravely by watching over her brother. And then we have Pharaoh's daughter refusing her father's edict to drown all the baby boys, the Hebrew baby boys. So those are four different sets of women that are defying Pharaoh. And I think the deeper, the deeper understanding of this is that uh, Pharaoh is described in very similar language to the snake, to the snake in the Garden of Eden. So think about the garden, the moment in the garden, you have a snake and you have a woman and the snake deceives the woman and the woman makes a mistake and the woman goes to the man and the man makes a mistake. And then, of course, humanity is, is forever changed. Our, our uh, creation gets changed. You know, we, we are changed. Our relationship to God is changed. So these things are changed. But now what we find here at the beginning of the book of Exodus is in some sense a reversal of the Garden of Eden. It's, it's an incomplete reversal. The complete reversal of the problem in the Garden um, will happen when Jesus returns and he sets up his kingdom on earth. So I'm not, you know, I'm not saying this is a complete reversal of the Garden of Eden, but there is a reversal here of the imagery. And, and very interestingly, uh, Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 1 is described like the snake is. He uses the same words, let's deal craftily with these Hebrews as the snake's description in Genesis chapter 3. And so here we have the snake figure. And the Pharaoh, even though there are two different Pharaohs in the Exodus account, there's the initial Pharaoh that knew not um, Joseph, uh, who presumably becomes like the adopted uh, grandfather of Moses. And then there is the later Pharaoh because we find out that that Pharaoh dies out before Moses comes back. And so there are you know, two at least Pharaohs during this period of time, uh, but they're never named. And I think one of the reasons why they're never named is so that we would tie them together almost as if they're the same figure. And so we have, we have this snake-like Pharaoh who wants to, uh, just like the snake in the garden, he wants to uh, hurt God's good creation. He wants to defile God's good creation. He wants to subvert God's plans and God's purposes. And so in fighting against Pharaoh, these women are reversing in some sense uh, the curse of Eve. They're reversing uh, their, their, their uh, foremother's mistakes. And so I think that that's a really interesting way of looking at, at this account and, and uh, God working, you know, really um, uh, profoundly, even if it seems very subtle through the lives of these women. I think it's, it's really interesting to consider all that. Uh, another point that I want to make here is the statement that Moses's mom makes uh, when he's born. It says, you know, she saw that he was a fine child. That's what the ESV says. She saw that he was a fine child. And it seems like a weird statement to us because um, you know, like what kind of mom would look at a baby and say, oh, um, oh, uh, you know, this baby's super cute. I guess I won't throw him into the Nile, like Pharaoh told me. Like, <laughs> it just seems like a weird thing for a mother to say. Like, why would you need to think that the baby is attractive physically or something uh, to not want to throw the baby into the water and, and drown them? And um, so, you know, again, this is a modern Western problem that we have with the text. It's not necessarily something that the ancients would have had with the text, because what we find when we look at that 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 statement, uh, we, we see that it's actually a very intentional echo of Genesis one. 
she, in essence, if we want to translate it the way that it was translated in Genesis chapter one, we would say she saw that her child was good. <laughs> she saw that her child was good. So this is, an, again, another intentional echo of Genesis one. It's a little bit of an awkward way to tell the story um, from our modern Western perspective, at least. But it's meant to highlight this connection with Genesis chapter one that that God, you know, God is, is putting special favor on Moses. She saw that he was good. So in the next verse, we find that Moses was placed in a basket. At least that's how it's translated in most modern English translations. But again, this is um, another case where our English translations fail us sometimes because that word for basket is the word for ark. It's the only other time in scripture that this word, this Hebrew word for ark is used. It's used in Noah's ark and it's used in Moses's ark, Moses's basket. And so here again, we, we see the intentional tying of Moses's life uh, to Noah's life and that pre-echo pre of the Exodus in Noah's life. Um, and of course, Moses's basket, the reason why we, they translate it basket is because it's a small little boat. It's a tiny little boat, not a big boat like an ark. Um, but anyway, it's the same word and the description of how it was built with the pitch on the inside and on the out is the same as the description of the ark as well. Very, very fascinating. Uh, the other thing is Moses gets placed in the reeds. Uh, and that word for reeds is the same word that's going to get used to describe the sea that they cross over. The sea uh, of reeds is, is how it should be translated, not the Red Sea, but the reed sea. And so Moses is, in some sense, as a baby, um, he's, he's going through the waters of the reeds, and he's being saved. And later, he's going to lead a group of people through the Sea of Reeds to where they're saved from Pharaoh and his, and his attempt at brutality. So those are all very intentional details that are given in these first couple of chapters of, of Exodus. So the final thing I want to say is that Moses gets a pretty cool uh, record of his birth and the early circumstances around uh, his very early childhood. And uh, there's an, an ancient uh, Near Eastern motif about, you know, exposed babies and about babies that undergo like very difficult ordeals. And that was very well understood in the ancient ancient world. There were many, many figures that had this kind of a story like Moses. Um, but that doesn't mean that Moses' account um, isn't historical. Uh, you know, we can understand that this is, this is like I said earlier, a, a definitely a historical account of what happened to Moses. Uh, just because there were other people that went through similar things or other stories that were told about uh, other people that are similar, it doesn't invalidate uh, the story about Moses. And I want to also point out that the, the promised child motif, the promised child um, theme is a prevalent theme throughout scripture. Um, that motif starts with, of course, Abraham and Isaac. The promised child of Abraham in his old age becomes Isaac. Uh, but it plays throughout the Old Testament. Samson's parents had a hard time conceiving children. Uh, Samuel's mother had a hard time conceiving children. Uh, you could even look at the promised child in Isaiah's day, which many people believe uh, re initially referred to Hezekiah. Um, although I don't think we're 100% clear exactly on who Isaiah is talking about. But regardless of, of that fact, what I'm trying to point out is that there are um, 
there are all throughout the scriptures, there are these promised child stories. And I believe that they're all true. I believe that they're all historical. Um, so just because the same thing happens over and over again, um, you know, God opens the womb of a formerly barren woman. Uh, that doesn't mean that, um, that, you know, this account is, is unrealistic or whatever. God, God can do any number of things. And he has done a, a number of wonderful miracles throughout history. And so here we get um, a really cool account of Moses' birth and the, the extreme circumstances in which he had to survive uh, just to be able to be the deliverer that God would call to lead um, the nation of Israel out of Egypt through this process of Exodus. And so it's a, it's a really fun place to start. And of course, you know, when we think about the promised child motif, it, it reaches its fulfillment and its climax in the promised child the promised child that was promised to us in, in Genesis chapter 3, the first promised child who came as Jesus 2,000 years ago, born in a, in a manger, born in place in a manger in the town of Bethlehem. And so um, it's cool to reflect on all that, um, especially in light of Advent, which we, we had just recently. So, so that's, uh, that's enough for... Uh, this first deep dive. I hope you enjoy uh, these deep dives. I think we're planning on doing quite a few of these throughout the Exodus series because we're learning so much material. It's impossible to get uh, to get it all into the Sunday sermons. And, it, and I think there's going to be enough most weeks for us to do these types of things. So hope you enjoy it. We'd love to hear your feedback. Uh, God bless you. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us on this deep dive. I want to close by thanking Dave Tench for his musical contributions and Paula Ely for her help with design and editing. We'll catch you next time. Let's continue to follow Jesus together.